Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Lena, welcome back to Battle Rhythm. It's good to hear from you again. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Pretty good. This is Lena Tamasetto, who is a professor at the University of Toronto. She's one of our co-hosts. It's been a, a bit a while since uh, we, we, we've chatted. So we have a bunch of different topics today, one which has been thrust upon us over the course of the weekend, which is Donald Trump in one of his rallies and one of his speeches basically said, Member, members of NATO are delinquent in pain, something, and that when president, he will encourage Russia to attack whoever he feels like that the United States will not lift a finger to defend its allies. And so this made a lot of news. So when he says that they're delinquent in paying whatever, so I'm assuming there is a formula for member countries to have to pay a fee but over. Not, but that's exactly it. He's not really talking about a fee. The challenge is that ever since Donald Trump was president, he's been yammering about the 2% aspiration that there is a bit of reality to this which is that in the Wales summit the nato countries agreed to aspire to to get to right. spending at least two the equivalent of two percent of their gross domestic product on their own defenses by 2024 so nobody is actually delinquent until this year if you take the aspiration and change it to a requirement that is in 2002 12 and 2013, 2014, as this was being negotiated, Canada was one of my, was one of the key countries trying to change the language to make sure it was not a requirement, but an aspiration. So it actually, right. basically, the countries will move towards spending 2%. So what we really need to do is just get closer. And the thing is, while there is a common pool of money that is used to pay for the lights and all the stuff at the headquarters in Brussels and other joint NATO expenses, the reality is that NATO military forces are almost entirely donated to any mission by individual countries. And so okay. the 2% is not dues. It's not, it's not like you're in a country fees. club. Right. It's not fees. <laughs> it's not like you're in a country club or to probably use the analogy that's probably closest in mind for Donald Trump. It's not a protection racket. What it is, is that we want our allies to, and, and Canada is among one of the laggards, of course. Uh, the United States wants its allies to spend more money on defense so that they are more capable of right. defending themselves and defending their allies and engaging whatever the missions that NATO decides to do. And maybe so that way the United States can spend either less, which is unlikely, or dedicate more resources to dealing with China, which is mostly not a NATO problem. Yes. And so that's the real thing. And so Trump has repeatedly referred to this thing instead as a fees. 
like somehow he expects either the United States or uh, NATO to get money from the national capitals of Germany and France and Canada and Belgium and all the rest. He's long made that argument. What he what what made the news splashier was his basic claim that he was encouraging Russia to attack whichever delinquents there were. During his administration, he did say that the United States wouldn't help those countries who didn't pay. The change here is, is the notion that he would actually actively encourage Russia to attack allies who are delinquent in his mind. Okay, so he the aspiration is 2% of GDP of a country, of a nation. So is it 2%? Like, where are we sitting right now in Canada? Like, we're, is not, it just our... <laughs> we're not sitting too well because we've been spending less than uh, yes. than we were before, 5% of okay. GDP. One of the challenges of this measure is that if the economy does really well, it makes you look bad on this measure because it's a percentage of your gross domestic product. Oh, that's right. Uh, okay. Canada is actually spending more in its military now than it was six, seven, eight, ten years ago. Okay. But it's declined as a percentage of GDP because we haven't kept up with our growth. Right. Whereas a country like Greece looks great because its economy keeps always tanks and uh, <laughs> it spends more than 2% of, of GDP on its defense. But Greece also never shows up or never shows up in a real way for NATO missions. Right. And they also spend most of their money on personnel. There's a different requirement that also came up at Wales, which was that each country promises to spend at least 20% of its defense budget on the capital equipment. That is improving okay. the high-tech stuff so that way NATO could be a high-tech alliance. We don't have as many people fighting, but the idea is we're supposed to have a higher-tech military. And so NATO requirement for the allies to spend more of their money on equipment and high-tech equipment. And Canada is doing that. We've decided to buy an F-35. We're building the ships. We've made a lot of decisions about spending money on capital, capital on big right. on big projects. So we're keeping that commitment. So Canada does underperform on the 2% metric, and, and Canada was facing a fair amount of blame and criticism from Trump during the administration right. for underspending. Yeah. So there's that. One of the things that's going on here is in 2016, when he ran for president the first time, he criticized NATO a lot. And I was right. confused by that because I didn't think that that was something that Americans really cared about. I didn't think it was a campaign right. issue. But it seemed like he was signaling to the to the people on the right, particularly the far right, who hate all internationalizations, that Trump was truly going to be an America first candidate and was going to spend less money and time and effort on its multilateral relationships. Since then, Trump has gotten more antagonized or more resentful about NATO because at NATO summits, he was always, you know, an odd man out, yeah. be yelling at everybody. And, and then there would be pictures of Trudeau and others sort of scoffing at, at Trump for completely misunderstanding everything and for not remembering his briefings and all that kind of stuff. So he, Trump hates Trudeau. Trump hates most of the leaders of Europe. Trump hates NATO. But it's also about a message that he's trying to send to his base, to the far right, uh -huh. saying that he is going to be opposed to all kinds of multilateral arrangements. He didn't do enough damage to them last time. He'll do more damage to him this time. And I think we should take him at his word, I think, that this is not just Oh, Trump being Trump, and when he gets in office, he's not doing anything about it. I think and one of the differences between this time and last time is that, and I told this to one of the reporters, Murray Brewster, I think, who, who, uh, the article was in the CBC, that while he appointed lots of arsonists, as I call them, in lots of different positions in the administration, 2016, 2017, you know, Betty DeVos had 
Department of Education always comes to mind as one of the key arsonists mm-hmm. trying to burn mm-hmm. down that department. He didn't do that for defense until he tried to do that in the last year. So while I always argue that General Mattis, sorry, Secretary of Defense Mattis, was widely overrated as, as a, an adult in the room, he wasn't a narcissist. He wasn't really trying to burn down and change the, either the Department of Defense or the Congress of Military Relations or America's relationship with his allies. In fact, Mattis resigned in part because of, of Trump's standing towards the allies. And my guess is that if Trump were to be elected at the end of this year and start his oath, his start his, give his oath of office in 2025, I think what he would do is he would try to burn down the earth. And I was asked about NORAD. I was like, well, if he finds out about NORAD, he'll burn that, burn that down too. If he finds out about it, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, he thinks that any deal he doesn't make is a bad right. that, that everybody's ripping him off. And part of this is projection because he's always seeking to rip everybody else off. And so he sees any existing deal. That was the problem with his obsession with NAFTA. NAFTA wasn't really a bad right. deal for the United States. Uh, and the new deal, USMCA or whatever you want to call it, or NAFTA 2.0, is really right. not that different. But right. because he negotiated it, it's a good deal. It's a good deal. And so he might try to renegotiate NORAD so that way Canada has to pay more or change the rules of it. And that's going to be very, very difficult for either Trudeau or Polyev or whoever has, ends up having to negotiate with Donald Trump, if Donald Trump is elected once again. So let's go down that road just a little bit, just because I'm curious as to what your thought is, that if he is elected to the office again, what can the international community do to prevent the dismantling of NATO or allowing Russia to have free reign to wander into whatever country it wants to. Like, what can be done? What can be done if the United States is, is, is if, led by a president who won't show up? Yeah, let's run that scenario. <laughs> Step one, Poland probably starts to develop nuclear weapons. Because the last time the Poles had to depend on the, on the French and the British to show up, it didn't work out well for them. And so they're probably going to think that the best way to deter the, the Russians is to have their own nuclear weapons. The heart of NATO ultimately is that an attack upon a member might lead to the use of the American nuclear weapons. And if that promises if that is no longer a credible threat, then individual countries may decide to be able to develop that threat on their own. I think for some European countries, they might invest more in the military so that way they can try to defend themselves and defend their allies better. Mm-hmm. Might mm-hmm. mean that the European Union's efforts to develop a common defense actually get a little more momentum. But that's going to be a problem because the British are outside of that. The British are outside of the EU. Yes, they are. And they're the ones with one of the two countries that have nuclear weapons. They're one of the ones with the most cubicle navy, all that other sort of stuff. And it kind of leaves Canada on its own. And that's the thing. Canada, if Trump becomes president, Canada is just thoroughly hosed. And this government and the next government, whoever it is, has to think about what it means to be alone. We've experienced some periods like that. You know, we got kind of beaten up by the Saudis while Trump was president. And the Americans didn't help out. Uh, I don't think Trump did that much work for us after asking us to, you know, to pick up the Huawei executive. I don't think we got a lot of help from the United States until Biden became president. I don't know what the solutions are. I don't know what the answers to these questions are in terms of what we can do or what we should do in terms of what are the responses to a, a, an authoritarian state to ourselves led by Donald Trump. But I do think that this government needs to spend some resources thinking about that day, even if it might get leaked out that they're thinking about that day. They need to do right. the thinking. And the conservatives also have to think about this, too, because they may think they'll get off scot-free because they're conservatives and have a common cause with Trump. But I wouldn't count on it. 
I wouldn't count on if I was if I was Paul uh, if I was uh, Polyev uh, that that he have a smooth sailing with a Donald Trump administration. Um, I do think that we need to start thinking about this. I just don't know what those thoughts will produce. Besides, I think more European countries spending more money in defense, which gets me to another thing I, I wanted to briefly mention, which is one of the converse, one of the things he also did w- uh, was Trump took credit for the fact that NATO countries were spending more money. On defense, he's like, it was my bullying that did that. It's like, was it? Because A, they started spending more money before Trump was president. So unless they were engaged in time travel, it was- Which is always possible. Which is always possible. (laughs) I am catching up on our episodes of Quantum Leap. Um, Yes. Because- But he's taking credit for this increased spending. And it's really, Putin should get the credit. Putin invaded Ukraine in 2014. He reinvaded it in 2022. And that's what caused European countries to change their stances on spending on on, on defense. Mm -hmm. Both of those more so than Donald Trump. The Donald Trump dynamic here is mixed. So yes, he yelled at them, but there was an academic paper that came out recently that showed that presidents yelling at at allies to spend more money for burden sharing purposes were not very successful at that. But the larger dynamic is that Donald Trump was widely unpopular in Europe and Canada. And so if leaders were seen as being very cooperative with Trump or succumbing to his threats, right, that would hurt them politically at home. And we tend to forget that other countries have domestic politics. Mm-hmm. So I think Trump's influence on defense spending in Europe and in Canada was a wash. Yes, he put more pressure. But on the other hand, he also raised the domestic political cost to these countries of cooperating too much with the United States. The parallel I drew on uh, Blue Sky is that George W. Bush got a lot of support from the Allies to get into Afghanistan in 2003, but that all declined in the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq. Right. Uh, He became widely unpopular in Europe. And so like the French contribution to Afghanistan, the guys who were doing most of the fighting were the secret guys who wouldn't make the news back home because the French president at the time Sarkozy? No, it's not Sarkozy. It's one before Sarkozy. Didn't want to be seen as doing too much to help the Bush administration. When Obama became president, suddenly European countries became much more cooperative in helping the United States out in Afghanistan. And so I think that the popularity of the American president in European countries affects the cost and benefits of cooperating with the United States. I don't think it's a terribly controversial claim. And so I don't think that Trump made it easier for countries to spend more money in defense because that was seen as the demand. If they did it, they were doing it because of the pressure, not of Trump, but of the Russian bear next door right. chewing up one of their neighbors. So it was the timing that he's taking credit for. He's taking credit for the fact that things did go up, but he wasn't president when it started going up. The, the next right. big boom was in 2022. Guess what? Trump wasn't president in 2022 year. Has there been a reaction from Moscow about these most recent comments from Trump? I'm not sure. Uh, Putin did have a long interview with Tucker Carlson, which uh, Putin was basically laying claim to lots of territory that currently is not Russian hands. So that's Russia, Ukraine, Poland, Latvia. So one would say it's bad timing, or it could be seeing that he's signaling to his Russian friends that that they should support him again, just Mm -hmm. like they did last time, because he would help them out. And if I were the Russians, I would certainly be waiting for a new Trump administration. I'd be trying to do anything I can to make it happen. So that leads us to a related topic, which is you wanted to chat about Melody Jolie's uh, appearance in Kiev and mm-hmm. her effort to deal with the 
plight of the lost Ukrainian children? Yeah, so Canada last week had announced the International Coalition for the Return of Ukrainian Children, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm fairly new to this area, so I didn't realize it was something that uh, the government of Canada would be involved in, but it was nice to, to read about. So Jolie was over in Ukraine and to talk about this initiative, this partnership that uh, Canada has built with the Ukrainian government to address the issues of uh, deportation and forced transfer of Ukrainian children by um, Russian by Russian Federationists at the start of the, the war. I had heard um, bits and pieces about children being taken away from their families, but I didn't realize the extent of this, this issue. So I was looking into it a little bit more and didn't realize that, you know, out of there were there have been thousands of children who have been taken away. And there really needs to be a mechanism to ensure that they go home. <laughs> and I was curious to see, you know, how Canada was going to do that. So uh, it turns out that there, you know, is this agreement, there's an investment of um, close to, I think, a, oh, $10 billion, close to $10 billion uh, that Ottawa has pledged towards this initiative where they're going to be coordinating uh, efforts with the Ukrainian government, sharing information, and, you know, trying to find ways to ensure that these kids get home in, in, a safe, in a safe manner, which I think is a really important um, yet overseen consequence of the conflict that's been happening, of, of, you know, the Russian uh, invasion to Ukraine. So it was nice for me to see that, you know, it really sort of speaks to me as to you know, the, the impact of these conflicts, not just the, you know, the front line, but also the impacts on families and families that aren't even directly involved. So it was nice to, to see this. I'll be definitely following this um, closely as it uh, as it sort of continues on to see you know what comes of it. Now, Steve, you have any thoughts on on this initiative? Uh, well, I mean, there are a lot of arguments about that we should surrender territory, or we should encourage the Ukrainians to surrender territory to the Russians. And this is actually one of the reasons why I'm opposed to to having some sort of ceasefire that allows Russia to own large parts of Ukraine. Because uh -huh. they've been brutal occupiers, and one of the things they've done with their occupation is to kidnap kids systematically. It's not like, you know, as you said, it's, it's thousands, not five or ten. Yes. It's thousands yeah. of kids that have been kidnapped, taken to Russia, and now they're trying to Russify them. You know, yes. Keep them Russian rather than Ukrainian, you know, try to make it hard for anybody to trace them. And this is just despicable. And so the fact that Canada is trying to help this uh i think it's an important initiative i again I, I i don't really know what we can do but what how this money will be used besides you know facilitating the russia the ukrainian military we can't send body snatchers into russian territory to get these kids back but we can place as much pressure as we can that the notion that this war doesn't end until the kids come home you know that, yeah. that we have to we have to make this a key part of any peace agreement uh, the, the Ukrainians get their territory back and they get their kids back. So I think this is a politically easy stance for Israel to take, but I think it's an important one as well that, to remind people that this is these are the stakes of this of this war and that we need to continue to support the Ukrainians to, to win the war and get their kids back. Yeah, this is definitely something that um, I would have, you know, on the surface not have considered um, when thinking about impact on, you know, the micro level, the, the, the individuals that are directly impacted you know, I hadn't realized the extent of the kidnapping and the Russifying of these children. It is, it's absolutely horrific. And it's, it's nice to see the government taking this really important stance and leading this 
in my understanding is that there's been, you know, support, you know, by other countries to help coordinate intel and information, but really short of, you know, body snatches, I, it, it'll be interesting to see how they utilize this uh, $9.7 billion. It's a, not a small chunk of change. And um, I hope, you know, they're able to use it to bring the kids home. And you're right. It needs to be part of any peace agreement because this is beyond horrific. Yeah. Third story we wanted to talk about is something closer to home. Yes. Uh, this car theft thing that has led to a day-long national summit on auto theft. Have you had any cars stolen? I have not. But I mean, we know it. We know it's happening. We see it. I see it all the time on the local news, and I hear about it because it's just my partner's line of work, working in the front line with the Toronto Police Service, hearing stories about these car thefts. So it was interesting for me to see it being elevated, you know, to like federal stage, because I do realize, you know, there it's it's a whole network that that's behind this. Um, there's been a lot of investigative journalism that have been going on and news pieces and, you know, you know, videos that get the home security videos that get posted online. So I have a, you know, an understanding of the, the problem, but it's nice to see that it's been elevated because it is a very big issue because the, the, the thefts are becoming more and more violent. They're happening regularly. It's, it's such a cost and it just, it's more than just the folks that are you know, stealing cars. There's a whole network behind behind all that, which does require national as well as international attention. Well, I did have my car stolen. Did you really? Yeah, it was about two decades ago. It was around 2003, 2004. It was in a commuter train parking lot in Montreal. And when I got home from the end of a, a day of work, I got off the train, my car was not there. And this, this parking lot was within like 500 meters of a police station. And it was pretty clear that that car was on its way to some foreign market. Right. And Montreal is the car theft capital of North America because it is a port. And so this raises a few things. We, you know, the story talks mostly about, oh, how do we, you know, deal with the fact that a lot of the people involved are kids, that these, these car theft yes. rings involve yeah. kids. And it seems to me that if, if car theft is a big problem, then we need to think about the systemic problems. And so it's not about you know, try to find a few kids to punish. It's about maybe make it less profitable. How about making sure that the cars that are stolen don't make it out of Canada? We only have two major ports in this country, essentially, for the export mm -hmm. of stolen vehicles, Vancouver and Montreal. It shouldn't be that hard to spend some effort to make sure that the containers leaving Canada aren't chock full of stolen cars. I yes. mean, you know, if it, the, that's a federal problem and that's a federal domain. If that, yep. you know, if car theft is a huge problem, then how do you reduce crime? Well, one way is you reduce the incentives to commit the crime. You know, if there's not as much profit because you can't sell these stolen cars in foreign markets, then maybe that'll reduce the intensity. The second thing is I took a look at the article that, that we were, that was flagged to us. And it is true that car theft has increased over the past couple of years in most provinces, it's still far less than what it used to be. Far, far really? less than what it, Yes. Far, far less than it used to be. You know, we had the RCMP commissioner say that this was unprecedented. And I wanted to, you know, if this was a video podcast, <clears throat> I would have played the scene from 
uh, Princess Bride, where the guy says, I don't think you that word means what you think it means. <laughs> because all these lines, you know, are, are really lower, significantly lower than what they once were nationally and in province. So, like, Manitoba, for instance, I'm looking at it now, was having more than 100,000, I'm sorry, more than 1,000 cars stolen per 100,000 people. So that was like one out of every 100 cars was stolen or more than right. that. Around and 2000, when was this? 2000, 2002, and it dropped precipitously. Okay. Right. So, yeah, it's higher now than since 2010. Saskatchewan, the numbers now are catching up to what they were like five or 10 years ago. That British Columbia, actually, the numbers are flat line, so it's still much lower than pretty much at any level that in, in recent history. Oh, what's another good one? Quebec. So Quebec has had a spike, and that spike gets it back to around 2015, 2017. So why and do you I'm, think there's this increased attention if things are sort of going up to previous levels rather than well, it is going know, up. exceeding them? Yeah. It is going up. So there's that. It's, I'm not saying that it hasn't gone up the past couple of years. So that is significant. You know, the media, if it bleeds, it leads. So if the one car is stolen, it makes the news. If one car is stolen and it's somebody's being carjacked and it's violent, then it'll certainly lead the news. Right. So one of my big drums I always beat, or one of my pet peeves, is that we live in a time, with a few exceptions, that are safer than any other point in time. There's less murder, there's less rape, there's less... Mm -hmm. Less car theft, maybe not compared to last year, but compared to five or 10, 15 years ago. And this, but the media constantly covers the things that happen, not the things that don't happen. And so if crime, there's less crime, they still cover crime. It just makes right. it seem as if it's all around us. And this has created demand for cops. And even though cops are actually investigating fewer crimes and solving fewer crimes and actually writing less, fewer tickets because they've learned uh, from the past few years that they can actually do less and yet demand more jobs. It makes it harder to do the things we need to do, which is we need to move money away from police and to other social services, to other government agencies to deal with root causes of various Absolutely. problems. Yep. And instead, we spend more money to cops because we have the media uh, feeding this perception that there's more crime. We have the police feeding this perception that there's more crime. I mean, it's astonishing that there's this story of talking about how much more car theft there is when it also provides figures showing that it, it's, it's, it's a, there is a recent bump, but it is nothing compared to the way things used to be. I think possibly with the shift, how information is shared, possibly because, you know, every day social media feeds are inundated by, you know, home security cameras of these brazen thefts. These horse pirates? That's... Right. So it just I think that's possibly where this might be coming from, this perception of a increase in car thefts relative to, you know, whenever, because we're seeing this more and more, not just from the media, just, you know, regular folks are posting the stuff. Right. And we're inundated by that. So, I mean, that possibly could also be this increased attention. I was just, you know, quite surprised that there was like this federal platform because I've just have seen it as sort of like a local issue that has been happening in and around the area. Well, that speaks to a, another issue. I mean, I don't think there's a federal role in this, but it, the federal role is, again, in dealing with the ports. And deal with the ports. And also, you know, organized crime usually doesn't keep itself to one province. So there's a role for federal mm -hmm. policing to deal with organized crime. So maybe the RCMP should be doing more of that than of other things that it 
probably shouldn't be spending time on. But one of the challenges we have in Canada is that the media always makes everything a federal problem, whether it's right. a provincial responsibility or municipal responsibility. And so that's a recurring dynamic. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Anything more you got? Any of these issues, Lena? No, I don't. I'd be interested to, I'm, you know, going back to the, uh, the global initiative to, you know, return Ukrainian kids home. That's something that I'll be following closely. I'll be interested to see how, how they go about doing that and uh, the eventual success of, of um, the initiative. So, yeah, I'll be following yeah. that. Yeah, we absolutely should be tracking what's going on with the consequences of the Ukraine. The Ukrainians are, are facing a real challenge right now because they're already out of ammunition. It's allowed the Russians to gain back some territory. The Ukrainians are obviously very anxious about the next American election because it makes things uh, very stark for them. There currently is a bill that just got passed by the Senate that would give significant American aid, uh, which has been slower and slower lately because the Republic opposition to such aid. It's unclear to me that this aid will make it out of the House of Representatives. Yeah, I think I think that we should be very, very concerned about what's going on in Ukraine. And it, unfortunately, it's deeply embedded now in American domestic politics. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Anyway, it's always good to talk to you, Lena. It's um, good to talk I, to you, too. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the winter. I will be, my next top brought, uh, taping of this will be while I'm in Germany, as I will be spending the next three months in Berlin on a fellowship. But I will certainly be keeping in touch with all the co-hosts and keeping up with the podcast. I should say that our next segment is an interview that Anessa Kimball did with retired Colonel Petar Tichy, uh, who is the program director of NATO's Future Forces International Exhibit Exhibition. So she met him, I think, in her European travels while she was on sabbatical. And so that segment comes up next. Always a pleasure, Lena, and enjoy the Toronto winter. Safe travels. This is Anessa Kimball, and uh, this afternoon uh, I have with me Peter Tsiki, who is um, the director of the Future Forces Forum, and he has so generously offered to respond to some questions that we have. Um, I met Mr. Tsiki when I was recently in the Czech Republic, and so we're going to talk a little bit about Czech-NATO relations, Czech-Canadian relations, NATO-Canada, all things that we like, international security. I've got a bunch of questions. Thank you so much for joining. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Just to be a little bit more precise, I am not the whole director, just only the program director. The program director. Oh, right. okay. Yeah. My apologies. The program director no, no. of Future Forces no, no. And you're going to tell fine. us a little bit about that, because this is something I learned about uh, a bunch when I was there as well. So can you tell me a little bit about your educational history, your training, what you did in the, in defense and security? Okay. If I may start, you know, with my, let's say, the education and the start. Actually, I graduated in 1983 and military academy at that time, former Czechoslovakia at Košice, which is the, the eastern part of, of Slovakia. And after the school, I was sent to the 11 fighter wings to Žatec, which is completely on the other side of the Czechoslovakia at the time, starting to fly on MiG-21. In 1989, I spent three months in Lugovaya, which is Kazakhstan, former Soviet Union, to retrain on MiG-29. Of course, you know, after 1989, let's say the 1990s, my career a little bit switched 
to the to the other side. Then I uh, continue with my education in 1996, 1997. I spent uh, one year in our command and staff college in Alabama. In 2004 and five, I graduated the NATO Defense College in Rome. Basically, I would probably not uh, should not skip my six month course, uh, the language course in Borden. <laughs> In yes. Canada. Actually, that uh, also thanks to the Kenyan government that actually I started to learn, you know, then my my English language hopefully would be sufficient for this interview. Yes, yes. Um, and to me, that was something I found quite interesting because you weren't the only person that I met when I was traveling around Central and Eastern Europe that had participated in this kind of English language program for leaders. And so I found that also quite fascinating. And so obviously, one of the things that's very interesting, I think, to folks that are in North America is, you know, you have the, you have this very broad, long uh, experience in the military, but you also very much lived this transition um, of kind of being in, in what the Soviet sphere of influence in the Cold War to moving towards NATO. And I think for a lot of our listeners, that's something that's pretty interesting uh, in, in the sense of um, that lived experience, how that transition happened in the military. Can you tell me a little bit about, obviously you talked about learning English, but also, for example, uh, participating in NATO, UN missions. What, what were the types of things and activities that you did as somebody that was in the armed forces at the time to try to learn more about NATO, you know, learn the NATO a way we might say of doing things and all of that actually if i may start let's say my first uh, relationship with nato was actually 1990-1991 just after let's say that we changed the regime in the czech republic because of course you know mig 29 as aircraft was quite interesting for the other air forces and we got so many visitors here in the Czech Republic you know from different countries and I was at the time I was flying as a display pilot for okay. uh, on, on MiG-29 and almost everybody who visited the Czech Republic they wanted to ask to have on the air show <laughs> and it was actually our first well, let's say the relationship with the NATO now it's Sounds a little bit strange because, you know, when we flew to any Western country, we have actually, say, the zero capability in terms of the navigation system. Because, of course, we use the, the east part of the navigation system. That mm -hmm. the only chance how to fly on the every air show was actually fly together with the transport plane. Honestly speaking, we've been a little bit, or not a little bit, completely blind because we have no clue where we are. We have no connection with the tower. We had just flown wow. with the transport airplane and the transport airplane, the captain of the navigator of the transport airplane, he gave us all this necessary information. Afterwards, we actually, of course, it was during the summertime that you can expect the good weather, but sometimes we have to go through the clouds, what was quite exciting sometimes. But uh, when we actually see the airport, they just said, now we are free to land. <laughs> and second, actually... What was, and this actually probably helped me out, you know, with my, let's say, the father career that actually we realized that, let's say, that our English ability was limited to zero, you know. It's nice to say, how are you? And uh, to ask for food and drinks, but that was not sufficient to, to chat with the other pilots, you know, and also. Exactly, so, exactly. So to do the professionalization the power, that you have okay. to do. That we actually started to, we pay uh, our own teacher 
in Jates for two, three years to start uh, the language. Uh, and because of that, the guy, I would say that because of that, that I was chosen, you know, for the language course in baseball. And after five months, actually, I, I received an uh, NATO standard free, which actually opened me the door. I passed the test for the Air Command and Staff College. And then I spent another one year, 96, 97, in uh, uh, Staff College. When I returned back from 97, that was actually 1993, we became the part of the Partnership for Peace. Yes. Several courses, you know, some kind of, let's say, the basic relationship, basic uh, general meetings, you know, how NATO works, even, you know, small exercise, which I would not even call as the exercise because it was really some kind of the general discussions and courses. But after 1997, when I returned back from the staff college, that in 1996, the Czech Republic, or uh, we've been invited to NATO, and we start the preparation to become a NATO members. I was at the time, I uh, started to work on the, at the headquarters of the Czech Republic, and I became the head of the, we call the OPHD, Operation, Operation Harmonization Task Group, Wow. Okay. We were supposed to prepare the NATO Air Forces to be uh, to become uh, the member of the NATINAS, NATO Air Defense System. Mm -hmm. And because of also because of uh, this position, that actually I was the first Czech officer who was assigned to work at NATO headquarters, Rammstein Air Center, Air North, up to the rename on the Nerton uh, Air North. And I spent over there the three years dealing with integration of the Czech Air Forces to uh, NATO air defense system. And so that was obviously considerable work to be done in terms of, you know, thinking in terms of, let alone kind of cataloging, knowing what you have, and then thinking about how that kind of goes, can contribute to NATO. And so to me, uh, as somebody who's interested in burden sharing and really those functional aspects of burden sharing, I think it's fascinating because we often kind of gloss over those aspects of what countries are contributing and what that contributes to the whole when we do the 2%. Right. And, you know, I've wrote a book on that and we've talked about that at length. Yeah. So I will put that on the side. And so in those days, clearly things must have been interesting. They must have been moving. So when you came back to the Czech Republic, it was clear that the, the, Czech, the Czech Republic was on this path. It was going to be entering NATO it was kind of a matter of years. And so those couple of years must have been very hectic and busy, I can imagine, in terms of kind of policy and training. I mean, I can't even envision what it must have been like like kind of living that and you know trying to navigate regular life as well <laughs> well definitely you're, you're right you know and i tell you that let's say that my biggest lessons learned from that time was i was thinking that i am able to speak fluently in english that we very often realized that for some words we got completely different understanding what is actually behind the words okay i would say that even we as aviators, it's a little bit easier because very most of the things are very common. You know, there have been some certain aspects that, by the way, actually I sometimes realize that it's even within the NATO. You know, the Americans for the same one terms have a little bit different meaning. Of course, <laughs> stuff, you know. And that was something, you know, for what was quite challenging and exciting for us. 
And also, and this is something what I must say, you know, in the former Warsaw Pact, that was really central direct, you know, organization. Somebody actually above that, that is the right way how to do it. And we, everybody, we've been doing this. In Warsaw Pact, definitely didn't exist something like, which is the magic words in NATO waiver, that you can ask for some exceptions. You can actually a bit fight for your point of view for your view how actually the procedure or even you know if you dedicate some policies for NATO that you can more discuss you know in the NATO yeah. something but the idea that there was kind of a, a sense of the collectivity in the collective yeah. and so yeah. you kind of yeah. like you had you had a, a sense of influencing the way things were going one way or another that you were you're actually actively discussing as well. And obviously that was probably a challenge as well for the military forces because there was kind of this system where people were not questioning, people were not really thinking outside the box. And then you kind of come into the NATO fold and it's like, well, everybody, we want consultations. And it's, my interpretation is countries kind of make what they want out of NATO. There's so many things you can participate in. There's so many things you can be doing. And so really it's kind of like up to the country to say, okay, these are the things that are essential to us and we want to put our resources there. Of course, you know, and you can imagine, you know, the military, this is some kind, you know, the centralized organization, you know, this is not like the private organization that everybody can actually act as they want, you know, or to support. And I would say that, Two biggest challenges for the Czech Armed Forces at the time was that if I actually may, may, may speak for my, my experience, you know, I was at the time, let's say, roughly below, you know, the 40, you know, 38, 37 years old. I was in the position, let's say, Lieutenant Colonel and of course Colonel, but still, let's say, the middle level staff mm-hmm. and above, there was actually very experienced officers. Unfortunately, very limited. Most of them, they didn't speak English. Okay. Now, actually, you have to find a balance because, you know, you've got a younger generation. They've been able to speak English. They've been already, you know, sent to the U.S., Canada, Dutch, you know, U.K. uh, type of school. Then they've got some kind of the, I don't want to call knowledge, but some Mm -hmm. kind of impression of Mm -hmm. how the NATO works. And on the other side, that now, actually, you got senior officers that still, because they didn't understand, you know, because they didn't read, they was not able to speak. That somehow, you know, you've been sitting on the meeting behind the journal and you mm-hmm. will actually sometimes not speak on, be- uh, not just translate, but sometimes even on behalf of, mm-hmm. of the journals, you know. When I actually finished a good example, 2002, that was the summit in Prague, you know, and we yeah. prepared we prepared a plan how to protect because that was after September 11th. Yeah. And Protecting the airspace was really issue, you know, for Czech Republic at the time. You know, I was sitting in the meeting with the general who has almost no clue what we are talking about, you know, on this meeting, which actually, if you are subordinate of the general, you know, it's, it's an awkward situation. situation, you know, on this case. But now it's, of course, you know, we are already 30 years in NATO. The situation is completely different. Yeah, kind of the language barrier was substantial. Then I can imagine that there was a, the technological, you know, um, that the kind of just the 
the functional aspects of interoperability. And I mean, obviously at that mm -hmm. period, there must've been a lot of equipment that was incoming to the Czech Republic as well. So um, it must've also oh. been a little bit of a, a, an interesting period. There's not very many periods in history one thinks that you kind of Wasn't have this. Yeah, this yeah. Equipment is actually other issue, you know, because if you if you look, you know, um, Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic, of course, all equipment, they've been, you know, the Soviet Union or the Czech equipment. We saw this communication means and navigation means and everything, you know, from, uh, let's say, the east part and dealing with the east part. And you got actually, let's say that one option was put away all this equipment and to buy the new Western equipment, which was, would be so expensive. Yeah, so impossible, expensive. yeah. <laughs> Nobody would be able to afford it. And if uh, and you have to consider that we also, you know, change the society, economics and everything. Or you have to find out somehow the way that you modernize mm -hmm. the equipment. And that was example in, in case of uh, in case of the Czech Air Forces that we modernized the air defense system. That was actually a Russian coup and uh, Compania Retia, which by the way, when I finished my military career, I worked there as the business director. Okay. And the the company actually modernized the coupe on the Western standards, and not only the coupe, also the P-37 radars, P-18 radars, you know, also, you know, in case of the airplanes, we modernized the MiG-21 aircraft, not because we didn't have this already MiG-29, but MiG-29 aircraft put some navigation system, radio and everything, and actually waiting somehow and put, you know, and created the plan when we will have enough sources to buy the new equipment. Yes. And of course, you know, in this case, I must say the Air Force, they've been, we've been quite lucky because, and I would say because of uh, the presence of the NATO air defense system, that uh, we've been the first one that we received the new Western airplanes. It was also not so easy part, especially that we have the plan to buy the 24 pieces. Unfortunately, 1999, 2002, they've been so big flooding that the whole Czech Republic then be out of the water that everybody understand that if you actually compare to rebuild, you know, that uh, some part of this country or to buy new aircraft. Yeah. You know, the government decided to do something for our people, you know, that we actually didn't receive 24 just only the 14, those equipments, we didn't buy them, we rented them. Mm -hmm. So something brand new for, not only for me, but for all of us. Yeah. That you, you know, the fighter aircraft is quite, if you if you rent the aircraft. The second issue is that we've been asked to send the aircraft to, to protect the Baltic airspace. Well, that was quite challenging from the legal point of view, because, you know, we, uh, the Czech Republic was not the owner of this aircraft. Yeah. Ask you know the Swedish government, you know, if they would allow to fly over there and protect yes. the Yes. You know, we decided to buy, you know, the uh, new missiles. In this case, you have to put the US, yes. uh, US software. But we we cannot ask to buy the software because we are not the owner. And the Swedish that was not the member of the NATO. <laughs> that took like the three, four months to discuss who is actually asking. Oh my gosh, yes. The owner of the software and Technically speaking, from the technical point of view, that was a very easy task. Yeah, but the from the diplomatic point of view. Point of view.
bureaucratic point of view, that was almost, that was a nightmare, you know. Oh my gosh. And so today you're working with Future Forces Forum. So can you tell me a little bit about Future Forces Forum, uh, what it does, uh, what it contributes to NATO, to Central and Eastern Europe? Well, actually, Futures Forces 15 edition of the Futures Forces Forum, they started in the 1990s, and that was actually called as a small project together with the military. By the way, I was at the time sitting in the general staff, and that was actually dealing with the soldier of 21st century. They've been really focusing on soldier. Mm-hmm. Now, the, I would call it this mounted soldier system how the soldier of the 21st century will looks like with all this system, all this capability, what you can put on the soldier. But during this year, they've been growing and growing. And now is the real, I would say, big in terms, let's say, of the center Europe, because honestly speaking, we cannot compete with the Le Bourget or some other, you know, the exhibition uh, in Europe. And now, actually, they're really dealing with the forces. And I would say this quite is quite unique, a unique event, because you got the one part uh, which is dedicated to like the international affair, not focusing only on the defense issue, but also on the security issue and security sector. And the second part is that we try to arrange, you know, seminars, conferences, dealing with the same issues, with the same topics which are presented, let's say, on the exhibition. They actually, we try to create a unique platform when they can they they can meet you know the people from of course the users representing the users let's say the military personnel academia and industry subject matter expert on this card they they got a chance to sit together to discuss you know the most difficult part in terms is also to choose the topics which are interesting for let's say for all sides mm-hmm. for military for industry for academia because everybody, each of them, has, let's say, the different, different view on this uh, defense sector, what they expect. Yes. So I had opportunity to go to one of the events that was in Prague, and it was lovely. And the discussions were, I was just fascinated by the diversity in the room. Um, you know, I was kind of counting all the nationalities, seeing all of the people. The discussions were extremely interesting in terms of getting a depth of detail that I didn't necessarily expect in terms of thinking about uh, forces and recruitment and all of that. And so I thought that was, that was very interesting though. I did, there was no, I was the only Canadian there. There was nobody from the Canadian forces that attended. I thought it was really interesting because I heard a lot of the same challenges echoed in that room that we hear in Canada. And so I thought it was quite fascinating to, you know, just think about how within this alliance, we have all of these countries coming together on these opportunities to really kind of think about how they can advance the collective defense and what their national portion or contributions can be. And so that to me was really kind of interesting. And just the spirit of how we can solve these puzzles together that we face, I thought was quite interesting. You know, we often think about militaries as being really self-interested, right? Um, and so seeing all of these, you know, ranked officers talk about, we have these challenges and this is something we, you know, if we want to be able to 
collectively defend in the future. We all have to think about this. And then, of course, the other part that was really interesting from a, a civilian perspective was seeing all of the military equipment and doodads mm-hmm. and all of that. There was a helicopter uh, simulation, which was, you know, so got to see some of the helicopters that were from Africa. And so that was interesting, just seeing these people kind of reacting in this simulator, you know, um, mm-hmm. so... It was a fascinating event. And you know, if I may say, you know, and this is really fascinating. They called on such such conferences that we actually listen to those participants, the delegates. You realize that we very often have the same aim. You know, we actually see the same end state. The difference is how we actually approach the way how we actually get to this end state. And it's very very nice if actually you have the chance to listen. And to have the chance to discuss with some other nations and to see some, let's say, the good examples. Sometimes uh, you realize that how easy it is, how obvious, you know, it is, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, you know, there was uh, the, the representative from Jordania, which is actually, by the way, it's not the NATO member. But this colonel, he made so nice presentation, you know, how to actually accomplish, you know, even the tactical training of uh, the F-16 pilot. That, I mean, that even the representatives from the NATO nations, you know, would say, gorgeous, perfect, so easy, you know. We can also, you know, manage and take some, uh, let's say, the lessons learned from this. So obviously one of the other things that we're talking about, the Czech Republic, talking about Europe, NATO, one of the other major important things right now going on is uh, NATO's mission and enhance the forward presence to which both Canada and the Czech Republic are strong contributors. And so Canada leads the battle group in Latvia with 10 contributing partners, including the Czechs who contribute a mortar platoon. The Czechs also contribute to the presence in Lithuania with mechanized elements, um, armored engineers, electronic warfare support elements, and an anti-aircraft missile battery. And since 2022, the Czechs have been leading, of course, a battle group that's uh, situated in Slovakia. Um, with uh, German, Dutch, Slovenian, and U.S. contributions. And so for a military the size of the the Czech military, this is a considerable investment in a single mission, uh, one might say. And so can you talk a little bit about this? Like to, you know, kind of get your viewpoint on this. And let me let also, you know, the list what we actually mentioned, that uh, just now the government, our government decided that we will send uh, helicopters to be part of the eastern flank, you know, and also what what was actually the part, we don't speak too much about this, but just now because the Slovakian, they are expecting to retrain for X-16, that for several months, we actually took over together with the Poland to protect the airspace of Slovakia. Okay, so these are also things we definitely haven't talked about. (laughs) I mean, especially just now that I must say, let's say that start to speaking about the more general, of course, you know, the situation in Ukraine and Russia, really we see this war as possible threats to our territory. Yes. Because if Russia will succeed and they will defeat, you know, the whole Ukrainian, that it means that we are actually in the same situation like the during Cold War, because, you know, we've been also, you know, the, the country which had directly border with uh, the NATO country. Just now we might have Slovakian, still Slovakian between us, but this is a few hundred kilometers, you know. Uh, yes. 
closer with Russia than uh, if you travel from Odawa to Toronto, you know. It, and this is something that if we, especially, you know, we are the Czechs, if you look on our historical experience from 1968, we really see, you know, the, the presence of Russian troops as a real address. That actually yes. is really in our national interest to support as much as possible eastern flanks you know with all possible capabilities what we can actually provide this is really different if i compare our presence let's say in bosnia herzegovina when i actually spent five months or iraq or afghanistan that was also you know some kind of let's say the peacetime missions, but completely different, let's say, from our point of view. Mm-hmm. It was really far away. We've been able to support, but still we didn't see as a real threat in this case. This one is uh, is really is really different. Too. Yeah. And it's not only that we, we are going to send our, and we are also are willing to support by our troops. We as the Czechs, you know, we support the Ukraine with sending, of course, you know, some old material from the former Russia with still Soviet Union was still with some some in depot also you know in this case and I, I must say this is also you know some some positive stuff on our defense industry because we are still able to support with some munitions you know Ukrainian forces uh-huh. also they have some huge impact in terms of migrations because we got more than, in the beginning, there was like the 500,000 Ukrainian people, you know, sitting here in the Czech Republic, you know, most of them already went back, but still, you know, that really, you know, that just now we see a real impact of, mm-hmm. of war, you know, and that also have, you know, much bigger support of the Czech population that the Czech armed forces, you know, if we sent, you know, the the forces abroad. And also, you know, we are not only sent uh, our troops abroad, but also we train the Ukrainian forces here in the Czech Republic. My uh, sense when I was there was that most people I talked to were favorable to the Czech participation and NATO yeah. and the mission and like the, the urgency of the security threat to the Czech Republic because of what's going on in Ukraine. And of course, when I was there it was also right before the Slovak elections. And so there was a little bit of uncertainty about the electoral outcomes and what that might mean, particularly for, for the Czech Republic kind of in, in the short to medium term. And so I think that it's interesting to, to bring these viewpoints to our listeners because again as we have a very kind of a north american perspective which means that we are distant from the conflict even though canada is contributing a lot and it is true that this conflict has i would say in within canada kind of rebrought to the agenda a bit kind of concerns about canadian sovereignty in the arctic and stuff like that because you know russia is one of the main major countries that tends to be acting up there and so seeing this again you know for canadians i think it's a, it's important to bring these these viewpoints. And so can you tell me a little bit about what you see as the main challenges aside from Ukraine and the considerable security threat? I mean, there's so many other threats going on, hybrid threats and all of that. So what do you think are the main challenges for the Czech military in kind of the short to medium term? 
let me start, you know, the even before I will go to the really the specific military topics. I think the biggest challenge is not only for the military, but the whole society. Because, you know, this Ukrainian conflict actually brings some obvious, from my point of view, but some new aspect on the Czech society, which means dependency. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we've been almost 100% depend on gas from Russia. Yes. Supply from the gas. And if you can imagine just now there are the suction that we will live without the gas from the Russia and start to supply from the other sources that you cannot do it during the week in this case. And even, and I think successfully, successfully we managed to do it, still is the impact because, you know, just now we are paying for the energy, maybe some some families for, for the plus percent more the prices you know and everybody see every month you know on the bill mm-hmm. actually the impact also the sun is not the gas but also for the fuel the situation the fuel is a little bit better but still you know we've been depend you know on the rush of fuel because of the history because of uh, and mainly because of the part that the, our politician realize that just only the price of this product especially in terms of the gas not everything yeah not the everything. And this is actually some, uh, I would say, the, well, let's say the biggest choice for the society to actually to accept, mm-hmm. you know, this uh, impact. Back, you know, to, to your question concerning the military. Actually, one of thinking about this, you know, one of the biggest challenge is just now, where one would say is the positive side. I would say this is really, you know, the biggest challenge for the military just now. And is that current government... They took the law that the military received the 2% of GDP to spend on the military. And I think it will be very, very important that the Ministry of Defense will spend all this money wisely without any doubts of some kind of the corruption. If corruption, I yes. That there is no some kind of the hidden contract behind it that somebody receives more. Has to be lots of transparency, has to be lots of... Exactly, all kind of stuff. Because in this case, you are fighting for the trust of the taxpayers. Exactly, exactly. First point. Second point to this 2% of GDP is technical point of view. Because, you know, just now you got the money to buy this equipment. But in this case, if you got this equipment... You must know how to use it, um, and especially just now in, let's say, the within the concept of multi-domain operation, how to actually connect all these new platforms to one very efficient system. Yeah. Because just now, I mean, the platform is very important, but because of the new technologies, new emerging technologies, there are huge dependencies, you know, on each mm-hmm. other, how you share the data, you know, how you actually create all this organization structure, not only, let's say, internally in the Czech Republic, but also with the other allies, you know. And exactly. Also, you know, very important and the challenging is that we are in the same, we are not at the same level because, you know, some countries started sooner, some countries started, you know, still waiting for to receive the money. Speaking about this topic, that would be really one of the biggest challenge for the military is buying of the F-35 for the Czech Air Force, Czech Air Force or Czech Armed Forces, Czech MOD, you know, because this is really the platform that... It's something that the F-35, in my view, 
has nothing to do that I'm actually the airman still, I consider, <laughs> myself, you know, but it became the, let's say, the centerpiece of the Czech Armed Forces. Okay. So the capabilities, you know, that they call the future combat air system, that now you can, you can send all this information, different level of armies, you know, brigade. Yes. The the brigade, you know, to alter it, to, to arm vehicles, all kind of stuff, you know. I'm optimist, so the realistic, you know, we will see, we will see, but I think that uh, they will be able to to manage it. But there was also, you know, something our conference about this, especially if you if you look, you know, on the size of the military, for example, we got just now 14 Gripens. Now mm-hmm. we provided 24 aircraft. You know, we will have another 20 new helicopters with the Western system. And this is, you know, Purely mathematics, you know, if you have count three years in the military academy, three, four years, you know, to, yep. to get the wings, to yep. be so the first class pilot, you know, and to train you that in yeah. this, this year, the military university, they must have double numbers of students, not even the double, but I would say even the triple numbers of the students, but not all of them will actually succeed to fly. Exactly, exactly. And so I think that that's one of the the, the challenges in terms of when you have, you might have capacity to spend, but you have to have personnel and you have to have those personnel trained. And so even if you manage to recruit a large bump in a year or two, that doesn't necessarily solve your challenge when you have coming down the line, a much higher need for pilots, much higher need for all of those people that are going to support those things. And so, again, I think that these are challenges that all of our militaries face in terms of how to make the military and working in defense and security seem like a career that's interesting to, to young people. And so that's why I go in the classroom every you know term. I try to talk to those students. I'm trying to find those students that are interested in Canada. And anyways, I know I've I've taken up uh, the time that we had uh, allotted. And so I want to thank you so much for your time, for answering my questions, and for your very warm welcome when I was in the Czech Republic uh, at Future Forces and at NATO Days in Ostrava, uh, the air show, which was, of course, one of the highlights of my trip. And so I'd like to thank you so much and wish you a wonderful uh, rest of your day afternoon there thank you you for inviting me and let me finish that i do believe that we will have also on the future forces in october this year that we will see also the canadian presence i would love to see you know the i would love to see too and our canadian people that are listening right now at department of defense and across canada military bases let's hope hope so more than welcome thank you very much for inviting me